Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Hello, Job Shop fans. Jay Jacobs here with the first recorded episode of 2020. Before we begin with today's guest, I wanted to mention something that puzzles me. The Institute for Supply Management, ISM, a national organization and one that's pretty prominent in the news, puts out a monthly number that supposedly gauges the health of manufacturing. Above 50, manufacturing is growing. Below 50, manufacturing is shrinking. December's number was 47.2 and was the fifth month in a row below 50 and the worst number since June of 2009. The headlines are screaming manufacturing slowdown, but here is where I'm confused and why I said supposedly gauges the health of manufacturing. Myself and the team at Paperless Parts, we regularly speak with job shop owners, both prospects and customers, And in late December, what we were hearing almost unanimously from them is that the year is going to be getting off to an awesome start. I understand Boeing's decision to halt production of the MAX plane may be having an impact, but what is the disconnect? So I ask you as a listener, if you have some thoughts, please reach out to me because we are just not seeing the feedback from our shops saying that the, their business levels match what this ISM is putting out. Anyways, today we are joined by Eric Nekic with Lang Technovation in what promises to be a gripping discussion, pun intended. I sought Eric out because his company has come up in a couple podcasts of the Job Shop Show and then independently a former teammate of mine at Rapid, who since joined another shop as their technology implementer, told me that he'd selected Lang as their fixturing solution. So what's going on here? Work holding, fixturing, clamping, it's not a sexy subject and doesn't involve computers. But some top shops are investing in Lang and making this a focus point. Eric is gonna help us understand why. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Eric. Hey, thank you for having me, Jay. I'm going to take advantage of you having lots of shops as customers, Eric, both independent and captive. What I mentioned before about manufacturing numbers, does that jibe with what you are seeing and hearing out there? Not at all. No. Um, From everything we see here, uh, manufacturing is alive and well and very, very healthy coming into 2020. 
Okay. I'm really curious, what is the disconnect? Where are they getting the reported numbers that are showing a slowdown in manufacturing? And are they measuring parts of manufacturing that I guess you and I just don't consider part of the typical manufacturing or, or at least the job shop side of it. So anyways, that's just a, a curiosity for me. I want to start out our conversation with a quote on your LinkedIn page, a very recent one. And it says, for a long time, clamping technology was about holding a workpiece more firmly. We take a different approach. We ask, how can we increase the quality of a milled part while reducing costs? So what does that mean, Eric? Well, I think what it means is that, you know, work holding in, in my opinion, and I would think a lot of our competitors would even agree is an oftentimes uh, overlooked factor in the manufacturing process, right? In its simplest form, how are we going to hold the part securely and how are we going to hold the part rigidly? Um, I think that the new trend, and at least maybe going back for the last five, 10 years is, you know, are there ways that we can solve other manufacturing challenges with work holding? Um, and that comes to, you know, in its, in its earliest form, that trend was, you know, was, you heard, you started to hear terms like quick exchange and modularity, uh, compact. And now as we transition into four and five axis machining or even automated manufacturing, you start to see that uh, work holding uh, is, is, is really kind of rising to the occasion to, to assist those processes, to really complement them. Hmm. Interesting. Four or five axis, matter of fact, the fellow that I mentioned, the former teammate, I believe he specifically bought your technology for a five axis machine that they were bringing in house. So that, that's an interesting trend. But before we get into that, you mentioned it is often a overlooked area of job shop manufacturing. And I have to agree from a former job shop owner perspective because I didn't pay any attention to the clamping, fixturing, work holding technology. I just assumed it was there and it never came up in any discussion points as having the ability to make a difference in the quality of a part or helping to reduce the part cost. So before we jump into all this, talking to me as a job shop owner, teach me about clamping. And first of all, maybe we can talk about the different terms, work holding, clamping, fixturing, zero point clamping, things like that. Give me a rudimentary education. So whenever I discuss this, I like to start from the machine table and work my way up to the spindle. Okay. In the realm of work holding, that tends to be the most important area that you absolutely have to get correct, especially modular work holding, because everything's going to be in reference to what you have on the bottom of the stack. With zero point, uh, all we're really referring to is program orientation. Traditional work holding, traditional fixtures, you would be picking up the corner of a part or the corner of a workpiece in sort of a, either a dedicated fixture or a fixed jaw vise. 
picking sure. up that corner and then you would be programming out from that corner. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that was done with an edge finder, you know, even a probe. Right. right. Nowadays, when you, when you introduce fourth and fifth axis machining, now center of rotation becomes really, really important. So, you know, with center of rotation, if you're off just a little bit, now the part doesn't rotate on that C axis true. It's uh, concentrically aligned. So really all the zero point refers to is because we're programming off center of rotation, we want to program from the zero point of that part or the center of that part out. You can imagine the challenges that would come along with, uh, you know, setup times, trying to always make sure that you are perfectly on center of rotation. So what zero point also allows us to do is create a scenario where we can repeat quickly and accurately off that same zero point position. You could achieve that level of repeatability in a fixed jaw scenario with a workpiece stop or something similar. Mm-hmm. The issue is in fourth and fifth axis machining, if I have to use a workpiece stop, well, now it's cut off one side of the part that I could be machining in that operation. So, you know, zero point, again, we're just effectively talking about a programming orientation. Um, that makes sense. So how about the terms work holding, clamping, fixturing? Do those mean different things? Not, you know, so when I look at the work holding umbrella, if you will, I think it really is just who you're talking to. Um, you know, work holding, fixtures, clamps, vices, chucks. Most people are talking about the same, the, the, the same venue of parts, if you will. Mm-hmm. The same general products. Um, really, where we have to be a little more detailed is when we get into the realm of, you know, when someone says Chuck, we usually ask for a little more information because they're referring to something, you know, when, when I think of a Chuck, I think of, you know, a round holding component that has three or four jaws. Uh, but some people will say, you know, some people are alluding to a vice, you know, two moving jaws or, or mm-hmm. one fixed jaw. Okay. Um, but uh, I think, Jay, you were talking about, uh, I think, the, and I'm sorry, I got off cuff a little bit when we took the, the break there, but I think you had asked me too about uh, the, just the basics of work holding, right? And to start yes. going into that a little bit? Yes. Perfect. Please. Okay. Okay. So if if we start with work holding if we start with the origins of what work holding is and the core concept i mean the real basics are a means of holding a part or a workpiece for use in uh, for positioning and and for machining uh, or grinding or turning uh-huh. uh, it's how we're holding the part and in its it's typically used you know turning centers jig grinders milling machines but we also see you know our art products being used on CMMs, you know, quality assurance, part inspection, and even in assembly. The simple view of work holding has always kind of been, you know, this is part of doing business. Like you said, it's oft overlooked. Um, some, but now that we know it's something that can complement the procedure, it's interesting for me to always kind of go back and look at 
how workholding has evolved over the years. Right. So I think we mentioned very early on, you know, the, at its core, it's securely holding the part and then rigidity. We need to reduce as much vibration as possible. Mm-hmm. Enter the, you know, that center of rotation like we were talking about earlier. And I mean, it, you don't even have to go back five years to just hear some horror stories about setup time. You know, um, quick exchange comes along. People want, you know, more ergonomic, compact fixtures. And modularity becomes a real big buzzword in this next generation of fixtures. Mm-hmm. So for quick exchange, we just, we're just talking about reducing that setup time. Being able to take a vise or a chuck off a machine and set it right back down and know that you're going to repeat close enough where we don't have to refine that part in the machine tool. So modularity. If I can jump jump in, so what I so what I'm hearing there is that that is a time savings as well as a potential savings of a scrap or reject part. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And along with that trend, I think naturally uh, modularity comes into play. Uh, Modularity being able to achieve a high level of interchangeability among your different components. Um, you know, the best visual we could give anybody who's starting to, to look into modularity is just to envision the children's toy Legos, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, everything always kind of clicks and clacks together real nicely. And when you're, you could build a stack and then take it back down to just one or two fixtures, uh, very quickly and more importantly, very precisely. So from quick exchange, now fourth and fifth axis manufacturing starts to come in. And now some other terms become really important. That compact, that lower weight, instead of just being an ergonomics issue, a lot of it comes down to uh, being compact so that we have good accessibility to the part. And now because we have to reach four or five sides of that workpiece to machine it in one operation to make sure we're maximizing uh, getting the best return on investment of our five axis machining center, uh, we need to be able to reach all those sides without jeopardizing that holding power, that rigidity, and the best way, you know, that's traditionally always been done with a dovetail. And I think we'll get into that later when we talk about some of our products more specifically. But yes. getting accessibility to the workpiece without jeopardizing holding power is probably just one of the biggest challenges uh, that, that we've really taken head on. And, you know, with the lower clamping pressure Again, because we're trying to do as much as we can at one operation, we don't want to have to go back and correct for workpiece deformation. Uh, so we're looking for fixtures to repeat. Oftentimes, torque wrenches have to be used. And, you know, traditional vices, you could walk up with a, with a bar and a hammer, and you just wanted to get them as tight as possible. And because we're more compact now, we try to steer away from that. Uh, new alloys, new materials really require a, a little more finesse when it comes to accurately positioning that work in the fixture. Gotcha. So then after four, now, now it's interesting because now automation comes along. And so now we've, we've, we've addressed all those challenges throughout the years. And now the biggest one that we see is really 
with automated machine tool tending process reliability. I mean, that's the biggest buzzword going on right now is, you know, when you're at home trying to enjoy some family time on a Sunday and you've got machine tools running, man, you got to know that nothing's moving, nothing's falling out of your fixtures. You don't want that alarm to be texting your phone, right? (laughs) Exactly. So not only having all that great accessibility, all that holding power, all that anti-vibration, that, you know, that compact, modular, quick exchange, high repeat accuracy, but now we want to do it wear free, you know? Mm, And so those are, that is kind of the evolution of work holding. And that's kind of where we are right now with a lot of, uh, with a lot of the offerings out there is we're just trying to, uh, to catch all of those challenges in in one great device. So, from a shop owner's perspective, what I'm hearing and what when my ears would perk up is when there was the opportunity to take out variability in the process. And what I'm hearing is that the ability for interchange, the modularity, some of the automation stuff you talked about, it's a lot of it is sequenced around reducing variability. And specifically at Rapid, we had what I call the poor man's five axis. We had the trunnion tables. Sure. And I did not want us selling five axis parts. I wanted the trunnion tables to be used to manufacture three axis parts and reduce the number of setups. And as part of that, it, you didn't have to take the, you didn't have to create other fixtures. You, you didn't have to take the part in and out of a work holding device. But I also knew every time that you did that, you ran the risk of not putting the part back in exactly in the right, the same position. And it could be half a thou off, but you start compounding that. And as you said, the center of origin, you start making a difference part to part. So I really like the concept of the work holding, helping to reduce the variability of the, and essentially take out the or minimize the chance of error, which in my eyes was a scrap part, a reject part, which was dollars. Absolutely. You know, it's like a whole return on investment umbrella that you could look at, you know, with our work holding, you know, your work holding should contribute to your profit margin. So, you know, if your work holding is reducing your setup time, well, it's increased, then it's increasing your spindle uptime. Sure. If you have better accessibility, you have reduced cycle times. If it's a reliable process, you have less downtime. And if there's less operations, there's less handling. And I think anyone, you know, from small, medium to large manufacturer can look at those four scenarios plus what you're citing and, and man, just be like, I really need to take a look at what's on top of my machine table. You said it so much better than me, Eric. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So are there any other common words in the vocabulary of your world that we want to get under our belt in case we hear them? 
Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of them I mentioned before that will probably come back to at some point is going to be dovetail, you know, but I think the ones that, you know, a job shop, you know, a shop owner should be asking themselves a big one is, you know, the reliability process, reliability, accessibility, Mm -hmm. um, holding power. And what's interesting about these terms is they have to do with work holding, it doesn't matter if we're talking about a zero point plate or a pallet or a vice or a chuck, the words are all inclusive. So they cover everything we're talking about. Um, modularity. So if I had to pick a handful of those buzzwords that we should really be zeroing in on, it would be holding power, modularity, process reliability, and accessibility. And I, and, and we'll come back to some buzzwords, I think later, like dovetail, um, you know, that's a big one that'll kind of pop up over and over again, I think, throughout this, uh, throughout this podcast. Just curious, what percentage of a shop's budget do you get to play with or do you typically see getting spent on work holding? That's a great question. Um, you know, most of what we're doing is you know, new machine tool stuff. We do occasionally get in shops and and bring them up to speed, but I think where we're, at least where we land the most new business is people are buying their first five axis or people are trying to increase the profitability of like a new fourth axis or Trunnion. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say, man, I think it would vary shop to shop. Um, and it definitely is going to vary, you know, from vertical to horizontal, uh, machine center, uh, machining center. Uh, but at least for a new machine tool purchase, I mean, do you, see, I know this do you see more spending? Exact. Yeah. Do you see more spending on horizontals? Yes, because in most horizontal applications, now we're, now we're talking, uh, we're adding tombstones or other, you know, uh, we're adding other similar systems, pyramids, things like that, uh, mm-hmm. just because of the orientation of the spindle. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know if I have an actual percentage for you, but I could tell you, like, if you were buying a new machine tool and you were going to buy, you know, new fixtures, and we'll just say, like, you know, the the five-axis fixtures, the things, uh, you know, whether that's Lang or one of our competitors, you should probably anticipate that you're going to spend a minimum of about $15,000. Okay. So it doesn't probably because the price of machine tools varies so much. It's not necessarily a percentage, but more those are the hard dollars. Correct. And, you know, we find too, you know, that percentage is relative to, you know, some of these new machine tools with the large pallet pools and things mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's find out who Lang is. Can you tell us about your company? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Lang starts in Southern Germany about 30 years ago, over 30 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, our origins were as a job shop. That was that was how we got off the ground in the 80s. Um, and what's interesting is all the systems you see now stem from challenges we faced in our own job shop climate, our own manufacturing facility. So early on, the, the very first invention that 
comes out of southern Germany, Gunter Lang, is the Variotech accessory jaws. So if you look at these older fixed jaw vices, um, a lot of them utilize a component called a parallel, uh, which is essentially just a piece you would bolt to the front of the jaw to adjust the height of the part, Mm -hmm. to precisely adjust the height of the part. Well, I think that if you ask, you know, if you go back and you ask a lot of shop owners how much time people in their shop might spend looking for a a set of parallels to get that vice up and running, uh, I think that they just got sick and tired of it in Germany. So the Variotech accessory jaws allow it's it's a it bolts to the face of a traditional fixed jaw vise and what it allows the operator to do is by simply introducing some air to the jaw with with a simple air gun uh, they can create different parallel heights end stops different angles for the part and they can do that all on the fly and they can do it really really quickly and really precisely Um, so that was that was i think the first product that came out of southern germany what followed that next would be our most popular product even today, and that was the clean tech chip fan. And again, this comes from yeah. our own. Yeah. Yeah. That I, comes from kind of our own, you know, people, you know, operators blowing off parts mm-hmm. <laughs> in between in between parts at the end of the day. Um, the next two uh, inventions that came out of Germany, the the quick point, zero point, and then the macro grip pre-stamping. Again, I mean, the roots for those products are all in uh, the manufacturing challenges that we were facing at those times. And the same rolls into the automation products we offer now. So uh, that's always been a big part of our corporate history. And I think that's what's carried us a long way is that the products we're creating were designed to solve challenges in our own manufacturing. So why wouldn't they work in yours? You know, now if we fast forward to 2020, we've got almost 100 employees uh, plus uh, five facilities all over the globe. Hmm. Uh, And where's the U.S. headquarters? Absolutely. So we're here in Heartland, Wisconsin. In 2008, uh, Gunter decided he wanted to set up a sales service and small warehouse in to, to better serve our U.S. clients. Um, and from 2011 to present, we've been uh, here in Heartland, Wisconsin. Uh, we've got a technical center, a full warehouse, you know, uh, CNC machines of our own that allow us to modify for customer-specific needs. We've got a training center for our sales staff, a full-quality lab with CMM, um, a lot of uh, moving parts for order fulfillment, but yeah, it's 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 been here since 2008. Which we always, whenever we tell that story, people tend to laugh. So like, why would he set up shop here in 2008? You know, because <laughs> right. it was a challenging time for manufacturing. But uh, we weathered that storm, and and we're here again in Heartland, Wisconsin, doing well today. So the tech center is, I think, one of the things we're most proud of. We created an area with CNCs, so customers can actually come here from eight to five Monday through Friday mm-hmm. and see how on, on a CNC machine, see how we would make their part, their product with our fixtures. Uh, so we're able to do live cut demos and, you know, we're, we're, we're now a member of, since 2017, we've been a mm-hmm. member of the national association of manufacturers. So that's opened up the doors for us to do some really cool stuff on manufacturing day and, so we're really proud of our little facility here in Heartland, but uh, I think that if we look at the history of Lang as a whole, 
the thing we're probably most proud of is that everything we've built um, has been, you know, tried and tested in our own factories uh, and, and solved. Does Germany still make parts for other companies or is it strictly supplying your needs now? Correct. Yeah, we're strictly, we're strictly, and that's probably been for about 20, 25 years, we're strictly making laying products now. How about you? What's your background, Thanks. Eric? <laughs> so, you know, I, if I go back to the late 90s, I took my first job in manufacturing mm-hmm. at a company in Oconto, Wisconsin, by the name of Pendle Companies, and I was hired to work on process improvements you know, manufacturing efficiency, quality assurance, and how that, that, that all kind of, you know, that's all kind of cyclical, right? What um, type of products did they make? So we made components for laser printers, scanners. Uh, so we manufactured photoconductors, uh, toner cartridges. Mm-hmm. So basically the job there was I learned how to find and fix bottlenecks throughout a whole facility, you know, from the receiving dock to the shipping dock, if you will, and everything in between. And you start to learn a lot of cool core values like, you know, Kazen 5S and mm-hmm. Six Sigma and some of those really cool metrics that can be applied, uh, that can be applied to increase efficiency factory-wide, facility-wide. From there, I was there almost 10 years. I decided to take a job with a, a local uh, it's a little more than a lumber yard. They're a building supply retailer by the name of Menards. It's popular here in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, I did commercial outside sales. Uh, a high percentage of my customers were manufacturers. And so you start to see a lot of the needs manufacturers have, a lot of those moving parts that make up a manufacturing facility. Mm-hmm. And I really started to learn that if you if you took the time to understand the products and the processes that your customer makes, you could become way more of an asset to them instead of just like a, a run-of-the-mill vendor, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went from Menards. Uh, uh, there was an opening here at Lang, largely doing the same thing, you know, efficiency, process improvement, but at this time it just involved CNC machines. So stepping back to Menard, this is one of the, I'm always interested in how information, I'll use the generic term technology, gets transferred or job shop owners become aware of it. And it sounds like you started in the sales role at Menard that a value you added to your customers was transferring technology awareness to them. Is that a fair statement? Is that something that you did, whether consciously or unconsciously, as part of your your sales tools? Absolutely. No, that's, I mean, that's really the name of the game. Um, and I think that's in this, in this industry too, you know, mm-hmm. if you really take the time to understand your client, you know, there's often times where you, I might be doing something, I might be in a different, uh, a different area or reading something that might not be affiliated with the industry and be like, boy, you know, I bet you Bob's construction could use something like this. You know, and it might not, it might be something we don't even sell, but I think mm-hmm. that, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the role you take if, you're, if you really want to be an asset, you know. So just pushing this a little more, the more successful shops, were they more open to you sp- 
spending time with them, looking at you more than a salesperson, or is that just me as a former salesperson being wistful? No, I don't. I don't think that at all. I think that that's absolutely the role I had with a high percentage of my clients at at Menards, and mm-hmm. that's the role I the role I hope I have with a high percentage of the clients here at Lang. And I think that's true because we will, you know, we, we will field phone calls of, you know, Hey, this might be an area that you guys don't even deal with, you know, like turning, we get a lot of questions about turning, but, Mm -hmm. but I just want to pick your brain sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I think that stems from just trying to be a resource, you know, and, you know, if you position yourself as a resource rather than a sales guy, I think that the, the next part of that just kind of naturally happens. So on the flip side, what I'm trying to do is open up the listener, the job shop owner, or perhaps someone who is part of the team to evaluating the salesperson calling upon them and Perhaps they are not a resource and they really aren't adding any value, but if they do know what they're talking about, if they have a lot of experience and wisdom that can be extracted, it is worth taking the time to speak with them, whether in person or on the phone. I always thought that everybody eats lunch. So me taking a lunch meeting with someone and this is when I was a shop owner was not really taking anything out of my day and it was an opportunity to get a lot of thoughts and new ideas from somebody who was into a lot of other shops so I really encourage job shop folks to think of the salesperson as a consultant, as a resource, and not just someone someone trying to sell you something. Absolutely. I I got you away from the wang there, but just... No, no, that's perfect. No, that's that's the kind of thing that I think that's important to mention too, Jay, and that's, you know, you really need to analyze who's in your shop and, you know, are they on the team or are they not on the team? You know, and I think that one of the things we've always tried to do is, you know, give, give, a certain level of value away. You know, we do a lot of free return on investment studies. We've always kind of, and some people look at me silly when I say this, but we've always kind of prided ourselves in not being afraid to walk away from the table. I've had plenty of conversations with shop owners where I've said, Lang really isn't a good fit for this. You know, there's a better solution for what you're trying to manufacture than, you know, I could probably go through and I could patch some things together but if it's not the absolute best, if I don't feel that it's the best solution for you, I won't try and sell it to you, you know? And, and, and that's, that's how our, our entire sales staff is kind of programmed. Um, I think that's the long-term approach and typically what I see with European suppliers. So I want to talk a little bit specifically about some of the products or the application because the, modularity and the, I think the way you described the quick interchange is very interesting to me. So what, how does the Lang product make that happen versus what you might see with a typical vice in the shop? 
can you give me some comparison on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, let's start with, with vices. And if you don't mind, what I typically like to do, because they're, you know, you could go Google search five axis vice right now, and you're going to get a lot of pictures of a lot of products that always kind of look almost the same on the surface. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like to start with the component that separates us really from, um, really from, you know, the other, from the other solutions that are out there. Um, we'll come back to this dovetail that we talked about, right? So yes. when five axis machining kind of starts really taking a, a hold, that accessibility without jeopardizing holding power, the kind of the accepted industry standard for how we're going to hold that part becomes a dovetail. The dovetail is very simple. It's basically you have a flat on one side and an angle on the other, and then your, your clamp or your dovetail holder mirrors that. And by tightening a few screws, uh, you're able to, to, to push against that angle and you push it against the flat and then the part is held. And the beauty of it is now you're only clamping on the dovetail. So the entire part, all the surfaces you need the machine is above the fixture. So it's beautiful accessibility. And with some holders, you can even put dowel pins in there to help with part location. Again, it comes back to not having to have those longer set of times, not having to find that part in the machine tool over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, so dovetails work really, really well. So I, you know, it's probably important to mention that. The only issue with a dovetail is that it requires a machine tool and a machinist to cut it. Mm -hmm. When we rolled off our pre-stamping, the idea was to give the industry the holding power of a dovetail the accessibility of a dovetail, all the benefits of that technology without the downside, without needing that machine tool and that machinist. So everybody and their brother can sell you a serrated tooth vice jaw and they work great. And that just means we're going to set the part in, we're going to close the vice. The t as we close to that max tour, the teeth are going to bite into the material and they're going to hold as they, as they kind of penetrate that material and they work. The real issue comes into where we're headed in medical and aerospace and some of those industries. Some of these alloys like stainless, uh, titanium, Inconel, mm -hmm. the hardness factor of those don't make them good fits with a traditional serrated tooth vice jaw. The answer as to why they don't is very simple. It comes back to that buzzword process reliability. If I use any vice, mine included, to bite and hold, bite and hold those harder work pieces over and over and over again, the teeth are going to wear. And anybody that's been in this game long enough will probably tell you that wear, component wear, especially when it comes to fixtures, work holding vices, chucks, mm -hmm. that's the no zone. I mean, that's just, sure. especially again, if we come back to now we want to introduce some automation. So I want to be home with my family on Sunday while the machine tool runs. If parts start moving, things get ugly. Mm -hmm. So, with the Lang tooth serrations, we hold the patent on that pre-stamping technology. So essentially what we're doing is we're pre-stamping the contour of our vice tooth serrations onto less, just less than three millimeter material of the workpiece. So when we go to load that part in a Lang vise, the tooth has already penetrated the material. That was done offline in like three seconds. So all a Lang vice tooth 
ever has to do is sit in that pre-stamped pocket and hold the part. So just thinking this through, and I've seen this for the listener who I encourage you to go to the website and you get a little more of a flavor. The that number one, what I liked about it is it's a, it's essentially a cart that will put the serrations into the material so that you don't have to spend X number of dollars on a machining center and a machinist. The, and it happens pretty quickly. So what do people just do it right at the work centers? The- yeah, exactly. You've got it on a workbench or like you said, you've got it on one of our movable carts. And yeah, I mean, it's just placing the workpiece in this, this hydraulic stamping vice and in five seconds max, so, it's, it's ready to load into the machine tool vice. Right. So, so it sounds like you have matching serrations, we'll call it in your work holding products. Yep. How Absolutely. do you how do you know that those are going to align exactly where you want them to? Because, you know, there's some, the serrations have some, some distance there. So, and that, how, how does that, you know, if you put the serrations into a piece of material and then the next one goes in a little bit differently, how does that create a, a consistent alignment or is it because the, when you're machining the part, I guess you're starting with a piece of billet that it sort of doesn't matter where you start. It's probably a little bit of both. We have two main things working for us as far as accurate position of that raw stock. But yeah, you know, the systems in and of themselves are largely designed for raw stock. So the assumption is being made that you've given yourself enough workpiece around what you have to machine to accommodate for, you know, a few thou in one direction. Okay, but and, once, and have, once you and once you've locked that in, then then you're set. It's gonna it's gonna clamp the same way every time. Gotcha. Exactly, and the tooth contour so that the teeth repeat center to center plus or minus five ten thousandths of an inch. So it's really precise precise as far as lateral placement. Precise enough that mm-hmm. you don't need to use a work stop. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, the teeth are spaced every approximately quarter inch, it's six millimeter, right? So we always make the joke that your operator could load the part six millimeter plus or minus 10 microns in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, we actually have a really low cost accessory that we sell in conjunction with the unit called the center marking tool. And what it does, the top of all of our vice jaws are scaled. So the center of the jaws marked zero and then it goes out in increments from there to the edge of the jaw in both huh. directions. Okay. So we have a, our center marking tool is going to put a nice fat line on the workpiece, so your operator can line that up with the zero marking on the scale and uh, doesn't even have to think about it. Great. Great. So the beauty on the backside of that is now because that laying vice jaw only has to hold, laying vice jaws, those tooth serrations last forever. It's the mm-hmm. best process reliability you'll get with that type of vice. Do you, because you are... Essentially, you have both the stock and the work-holding jaws serrated. I would assume that you are locking tighter, which would allow you to have more machining force on the material. Is that a correct assumption? Well, you know, holding power is always going to be relative to the strength of the spindle in and of itself. 
What we get with the tooth serrations being fully seated is we get significant vibration reduction. Uh, A lot of times with these devices, mm. that's your enemy. You start picking up some vibration. Before you know it, it turns into a lot of vibration. Things start moving, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look, the whole design, again, of these self-centering, these five-axis vices is you know, low actuation force that translates into high clamping force. So the, sp- the smallest vice we make only requires about 23 foot-pounds of max torque, but that translates into 1,500 pounds of clamping force. But the problem with 23 foot-pounds of max torque means that even in a soft material like aluminum or even like a composite, mm-hmm. when I tighten my vise to 23 foot-pounds, the teeth bite in a little bit, but it doesn't fully seat that tooth. When I'm using pre-stamping, I'm creating a full slot for that tooth to go into. So mm-hmm. we really get a lot of substantial vibration reduction using that technology. That makes a lot of sense and wasn't something that I was thinking about. And I would assume that vibration, that's one of the downstream variabilities that you start to want to eliminate or you are thinking about once your workpiece is really securely being held. Absolutely. I mean, you guys, you know, that the very surface, you know, surface finish is, you know, right at the top of things that are affected by vibration. But, you know, we're dealing with customers that are trying to machine within two ten thousandths of an inch. Mm-hmm. The littlest amount of vibration can start throwing those tolerances off, you know. Yep. So it's, it's really important that we're holding that thing rigid. Um, now, when we talk to zero point, really the, the thing that separates laying on the zero point side of the J is, I think, the pull stud. Um, the Lang Quick Point is set up in a way that you can really put, you, could, you can buy a four pack of the pull studs or the clamping studs that interact with the, the zero point receiver that it's what kind of holds that vice, holds that fixture down to the machine table. And that's also the component that makes sure that we're holding it precisely in position, that it's repeating. Mm-hmm. Um, the pull stud is one of the most important parts of that whole, that whole system. If the pull stud is poor quality, they can shear. Um, if the pull stud isn't accurate, your fixture can stick or your repeatability is lost. Um, we've always, you know, we've been doing this a long time. We offer a four pack of pull studs at a real competitive price. On the job shop side of things, why that's important is really the for standardizing and really for, I think, a lot of shop owners look at new fixtures, like getting in bed with a new fixture company, like I have to rebuy everything. This is going to be insane. And it's just not the case with, with the pull studs because they're sold individual. You can buy a four pack for starting under $70 for four of them. And you can convert all of your old fixed jaw vices, all that dedicating, all that dedicated, those dedicated fixtures you've made over the years. Um, you put the studs in the bottom of those, and now what you've done is you've taken all that fixturing, you've redeployed it, but you've uh, also kind of increased its profitability because now it's quick exchange, high repeat accuracy. So it's a great return. Um, and I think for a job shop owner, maybe even any manufacturer, we look at the level of standardization that we achieve. 
you know, when we're, when we're looking at, okay, well, we're quoting this part for someone, how the heck are we going to hold it? Well, when mm-hmm. you get into a system like ours, well, okay, we're either going to put studs in it because we could put the, 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 the pole studs right into the workpiece if we wanted to, or we're going to stamp it. I mean, it really, it really starts to, to cut that list down uh, and we can spend a lot less time. So the studs are what allow you to take the work holding unit and say from the five axis and put it in a CMM or put it into a three axis machining center to get the six side. Is that the type of thing that I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. So what you see is, you know, that those studs are what are going to ensure that we're going to repeat on and off that machine table over and over and over again. So, you know, you cite the CMM, that's a great example. Whenever we are quoting this, we always ask, do you have a CMM? And if the answer is yes, then we'll try to quote that extra quick point plate to go out on the CMM. Envision if you have a workpiece in a vise and that vise has the pole studs that make so that it can be integrated with a, with a zero point or in mm-hmm. our case, the quick point system. So we machine our workpiece. Okay, let's go check some measurements on the CMM. Imagine taking the whole vise with the workpiece in it over to the CMM, you set it in the plate you have over there, or the quick point right. plate over there. You take your measurements. Well, if you have to make any adjustments, you put the whole fixture back in the machine tool. You know you're repeating it less than two ten thousandths. So you just have to, you know, whatever, adjust your tool offsets and you're good to go. But that to me is, you know, one of the really unseen advantages. And I'm glad that you that you brought that up. But yeah, that's or if, you know, another popular thing is let's say you have a vertical machine center with a fourth axis on one side. Mm-hmm. Well, if I have a zero point quick point plate on my vertical table and I have a zero point quick point plate on my fourth axis, I can do my four sides and then I can pull it off that fourth axis and now set it on the plate I have in the vertical table and do mm-hmm. my top. Gotcha. You know, it, it's just. Yep. Yeah, you don't want to be taking the part in and out. I like exactly. it. Exactly. I like it. All right. So anything else? I know that you have some automation products, but I would encourage the listener to go to your website to check those out. But I don't want to get into, because I think most of the listeners are not using automation, but give us a quick 30-second description of what your automation tools are doing before we move on. I think the best thing about it is it's set up with the modularity that makes our fixtures so popular. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a customer, I can get into a laying vise and a laying plate for under 2000. And because the system's so modular, I can build over time. I can build organically. I can really manage my investment, right? I'm Mm going to add a vise here, maybe add a plate there. Well, the same holds true for the automation. Lang Robotrex uses the same fixtures that you would use on just a, you know, your normal three axis or fourth axis. So by the time the customer gets to that point where maybe I want to put a Robotrex on this machine tool because you can retrofit them to anything, mm-hmm. they already have they already have 90% of the key components that they would need. So, so you, you follow where I'm going, Jay? They don't have to reinvest right. now in all these new fixtures and chucks. And um, I, I'm with you. I would encourage people to look at it on the website. And if, and, and if, I, would in, 
if I could share any industry wisdom when it comes to automation, I would, I would encourage people to maybe call us or call, call some other automation uh, providers and really learn the difference between workpiece exchange versus fixture exchange. Gotcha. The quantities really determine which one you need. And I think where people will get the worst return on investment is if they don't understand the differences between those two and why you would roll one out as opposed to the other. Um, we deal all in fixture exchange work holding, which is what allows us to kind of roll that modularity into the automation end of things. But there are plenty of scenarios where it makes more fiscal sense for a customer to focus on workpiece exchange. Um, and, you know, we're always willing to help do that return on investment and we're always willing to help educate, but that would be what I would, what I would lead into if we just, you know, a few minutes to talk about automation. In my opinion, that's the most important message to get out there is make sure that you're, you're looking at, that you understand the difference between the two concepts and which one is best for your facility or your process. Sure. And I'm sure it depends on the specific scenario of the part being manufactured or group of parts. So what I'd like to ask you, Eric, is let's pretend that I am a job shop owner or look back at when I was a job shop owner at Rapid and I say, this is a this is something I want to try. This is something I want to bring in my shop and see if it makes sense. And I hear the, the four and five axis that to me makes a lot of sense, but what if I only am cutting on two and a half axis or three, three axis applications, where might a high precision work holding solution makes sense and how would I get started? How would I implement that? Great. You know, it's important to, because everything is so modular, there are levels to it, right? Mm -hmm. So if we were just walking into your facility and it was, you know, all three axis machines, mm -hmm. um, my advice to you would be, you know, at this point in time, it probably doesn't make much sense for you to invest in a self-centering vice or into our pre-stamping technology, but I've never walked into a facility that cannot, that cannot have an awesome return on investment with a quick point zero point system or the clean tech chip fan. So my advice would be, uh, you know, those two systems can help anyone anywhere at any time. Mm -hmm. uh, being able to not have to constantly find parts and take offsets you know, knowing you're going to be able to adapt anything very inexpensively to that system. Um, and then, you know, clean tech, in my opinion, that is the best, that is the easiest process in your whole facility to automate. And it is the best return on investment you'll that, ever if, get. Yeah. That one seems like a no brainer. What is <laughs> yeah. that? What does that cost? So they're going to start at $235. Sure. So that's a easy investment to try out. And I'm going to get on my soapbox here. And if I, if you will say pause here for a sec, Eric, I really want 
job shop owners to have this investment mindset, this way of looking at spending money as it's an investment. You make good investments, you make bad investments, but you make investments and you only lose if you don't learn something from a bad investment. If you have an expense mindset, then you're always trying to save money. And I have seen that is what keeps job shops from growing. And by the way, if you're not growing as a job shop, you're shrinking. So absolutely, you really need to step back and say, I've heard job shops say, oh, I don't really want to grow. Well, you're either growing or you're shrinking. So you have to make a decision. If you say, I don't want to grow my business and you have really said that I'm okay with shrinking my business. And is that really what you are saying? So anyways, unpause that. Uh, we, we want to try the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the chip fan. And if we wanted to bring in some of the zero point clamping tools, what, what's a good number that I should budget for an investment there to try something out? I would think that you should expect to at least spend $1,000 on your first quick point plate. All right. That would be the, the least amount. Okay. You know, I'm also thinking this really gets into the skills gap that's always talked about out there because right. the machinists who you could count on to overcome the slop in less precise or traditional vices and other holding equipment, they're, they're just not as available to be found today to hire. No. So you're hiring people who don't really understand the importance of really being precise in your alignment when you put a workpiece into a machining center. So I think that this technology is a great way to help make sure that you're still making good parts with the availability of the really the people who are there today to hire. So Absolutely, because what you're doing is you're controlling position, you're controlling orientation, and you're controlling how, how, how firmly it's held. You're controlling all those things, and really all you have to do is train someone to tighten a torque wrench, and you achieve those three really key components of the whole process if you, if you think about it. You, you, again, said that so much better than me, Eric. Thank you. <laughs> so before we wrap up here, can you give me one or two stories where you made a difference in a shop? Yeah, I would love to. I would love to. And then, you know, I do want to, hopefully we have time uh, because I, we do offer a challenge to, to job shops, mm -hmm. small, medium manufacturers on how to, to look at their work holding moving forward. Um, so I'd love if we have the chance to get into that. But our two biggest success stories, I think really also deal with what you were just talking to about skills gap. So I'll start with that one. We've got a large customer in Pennsylvania. Um, they they had always held things with dovetails 
and they were a big five axis shop, but over mm-hmm. in the corner, they had these three vertical machines and this one machinist and all they did all day long was prep work pieces. Now it's important when we talk about customers who want to get into fixtures like these because they want to reduce the number of operations. Well, prepping your workpiece is an operation. You're cheating if you don't count that, right? Right. So we got three vertical machines and one machinist, and all he does all day long is cut dovetails so that the parts can go into the five-axis machine to get manufactured. So they're hitting a growth spurt. They want to bring in a few more five-axis machines, but they've hit a capacity level as far as workpiece preparation. So now they have to ask themselves, we really, we will need to probably buy a fourth vertical and mm-hmm. consider hiring another machinist to keep up with the demand for these work pieces going over to these five axis mills, right? That's when they brought us in. And, uh, you know, we, we, we drove out there, we took a stamping unit with us. Uh, we like to kill two birds with one stone. So we kind of had the whole team there. So as we were presenting macro grip pre-stamping to them, we were also kind of subconsciously training them how to use it. It's mm-hmm. kind of that simple. Um, and needless to say, they switched over to our system. Uh, those verticals don't exist anymore. They were sold off and used to purchase more five axis machine tools. And that machinist has been redeployed where, where you want your machinist to be right. right? You want that skill level, um, running the five axis, you know, Hmm. maybe even taking that extra time to think about how to do things more efficiently. Right. Second success story, a large aerospace customer in Colorado. Uh, when we got out there, uh, they were, they're machining these six inch by six inch by three foot long, just monster bricks of titanium. And they were using dovetail holders again, but more like a technogrip fixture. Uh, but to fast forward, the workpiece prep was about an hour and 15 minute long per workpiece. The amount uh, of material. Wait, wait, alone, an hour and 15 minutes? A workpiece prep, yep. And the amount of material needed. Now, of course, I'm going to tell you the best stories I have, right, Jay? Sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the, uh, the amount of material needed of this titanium just to prep for this uh, Technograph fixture was $30 per workpiece. Hmm. They're machining 300 of these a month, right? Hmm. So an hour and 15 minutes to do this face mill operation because the bottom of the part became a datum and then machining dowel pin bores for locating, and then, of course, the Technogrip interface into this. So an hour and 15 minutes, $30 worth of material, just to be able to put this thing in the five-axis. We showed up in Colorado. We had sent a stamping unit out ahead of time, and we showed up. We stamped some work pieces. Again, we had the whole team there, so we're educating mm-hmm. as we're, we're educating as we're demonstrating, and literally that is down to a five second operation. Now they're saving 30 bucks for per work piece. I mean, that, that there is obviously an extreme case, but that particular company's saving, you know, a half a million dollars a year by switching to the system. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. All right. So, so where it works, it tends to really work well. How about in the zero point clamping, any success stories that come to mind there? Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's the same thing. I you know, we've walked into a lot of places that are kind of doing things the old way, loading the 
loading the dedicated fixture or loading the uh, the old Kurt Weiss onto a table and you're spending some time running an indicator over things to make sure it's trued up, tightened mm-hmm. down. Yep. Um, and I mean, that's really low hanging fruit. We're constantly going into those facilities and getting them a quick point plate and people are instantly, you know, instantly kind of tuned on and tuned in to, to what we're trying to do here. Um, but yeah, the, the zero point, um, it's probably the most common because it is such a good return on investment. I mean, there's thousands of those stories. All right. So you mentioned a challenge and we're getting close to where we do need to wrap up, but go ahead and throw that out there. If you, if you want to do that. I would just say if, if you're, if you're a job shop, you know, a medium, small manufacturer, do you measure your work holding performance? You know, I guess you don't know what you don't know, right? And so it can be as simple as a time study monitoring your setup times. You could do like throughput yield or something where you're measuring the amount of good parts that go in versus or uh, parts that go in versus good parts that come out. Or you could get as detailed as something like overall equipment effectiveness. Um, you know, we invite when people call us again, we try to be a resource, so we're willing to help you with those studies, but your work holding should be contributing to your profit. If it's not, it's time to measure it. And so we challenge people, you know, do you measure, do you measure your work holding? You should start. Hmm. I think that's a great way to look at this area. And again, it's not sexy and it doesn't involve computers, but it can make a difference. And I would also think that as a job shop owner listening to this, if I have a particular part where, vibration is an issue perhaps it is really that the workpiece is not being held tight enough and there right. might be an opportunity there so one thing i since you're in so many shops are there any the shops that you see that are super successful that you think of as top shops out there what are some best practices outside of work holding that you see them implementing in their shops? Well, you know, I think it's, I think when you walk into those shops and you see, you know, that five axis utilization or, you know, you see that, okay, so they've, they've made some substantial investments in their manufacturing, right? Mm-hmm. You see that that just naturally drives a lot of other technology. Um, so when I walk into like what I think are top shops, um, and I found it's not necessarily size relative, you right. know, I've walked yeah, into, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I always look at, you know, are they using, are they, are they programming offline? You know, what kind of software, you know, what kind of shop cleanliness is a big one for me. Uh, when you walk in, does that correlate? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think it all comes down to those lean principles that make a shop successful. You walk in, I mean, I'm seeing more and more shops that are painted light gray and white, you know, and it's like, you walk into those places and it's, it's, and you get a sense right away. Well, if they've invested in that ideology, that end of the whole lean spectrum, you know, Mm -hmm. shine, that's, the S shine. Mm-hmm. Um, it tells me that, okay, so here's a place that's obviously got their head screwed on. Right. And those principles tend to 
be uh, contagious and tend to flow into all other areas. So usually when we, when we see a real clean shop when we walk in, then you naturally start to see, you know, I think it's maybe cool. I don't know if it's necessarily an indicator that, uh, but when people have, you know, they're, they're programming offline right at the machine tool. So you have those machinists that are trained, that are well-versed in the, that CAD CAM software, you know, mm-hmm. um, seeing the cool cutting tool concepts, you know, high speed machining and those techniques, you can hear that. You know, I can hear that when I walk into a shop, you know? Uh, and so, so those, how does really that sound differently? <laughs> well, when you walk in and someone's really hogging out a piece of aluminum, I mean, sometimes depending on the quality of that cutting tool, you can feel it. <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, but yeah, that, that high speed machining, you know, I think that people that have done it know that sound where it's uh, without impersonating it. I don't know how to describe that for you, Jay. But, uh, <laughs> that, all right, we, we can move on from that. So, But I'm really interested in the commonalities of, of the shops who are high performers. And that's what I'm trying to, to eke out of you here, Eric. And anything Absolutely. else that you see that is it, I guess probably the best way is when you walk into a shop, you just, know that they are making money highly efficient and yep. just a sh- and, and shop the, that you want to be a partner with the first two determining factors i'll tell you it's 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 organization and cleanliness because mm-hmm. that's to me that's that's the big one that tells me okay so um yeah i i guess that those are always the first two that grab me when i walk in you know and on the flip side are there things when you walk into a shop you're like oh <laughs> uh, there there's there's going to be issues here or the mindset is not a growth mindset there was one time when i worked for menards that i walked into a facility and i mind you it's wisconsin so it's it's winter so there was some some you know my feet were a little wet but i mean the floor was pretty slick with oil and i I took a ride and i fell down (laughs) so that was uh um i think i think that really it's the the biggest thing i run into jay is there's still a level of closed-mindedness for some of the technology that that we talk about you know there's really i have walked Mm. into some places where people still have that you know, different ideology about automation and about, you know, that vice will never hold that. And that's part of the reason why we started offering two week, no obligation free trials, Mm -hmm. because someone who's been in the business, you know, 35, 40 years, doesn't think your vice is going to hold his part. There's only one way to change his mind. And that's for, to let a machine on that vice, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So we do still run into a lot of that. uh, It'll never work. Uh, you don't need that sort of thing, you know, uh, and, and, and that's usually an indicator to me that um, I don't want to say that a shop's suffering, but that uh, like you had said previously, like they might start, you know, at some point starting to feel a loss in business or, mm-hmm. you know, it's about staying competitive. Sure. Sure. Well, this is a good place to end here. I think today, Eric, and I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us. I love getting into the nitty gritty of 
work holding and fixturing and clamping. And I am, the gears are churning. There's so much for me to process and digest here and think about how I might have been holding rapid back by not taking a closer look at the types of technologies which we talked about today. But what I'm hearing is this is a great way to take another variable out of your shop, particularly as you move towards automation and automation can mean different things, of course. So, Absolutely. yeah, it's a, it's such low hanging fruit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just so easy to grab it and change it. Yeah. Well, incredibly powerful. I, again, am very appreciative of you being open, uh, my my other podcast guests and so, some of the other folks who I mentioned are are using Lang, and you're not a huge company, so the fact that you're starting to really make inroads in the shops is is very impressive, and I think a trend of where machining is going. So, uh, anything else you'd like to add? No, I just want to thank you again for inviting uh, me to be on your podcast, Jay. It's been it's been a lot of fun. How would a listener reach you and Lang? Uh, the best way would be to email us. Uh, you can do that through the website, or you can just email sales at lang-technovation.com. And your website is lang, L-A-N-G-T-E-C-H-N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N.com. Yes, you sir. also are... I saw you on LinkedIn, on Facebook, any, any other platforms, yeah, social media, Instagram. That you Instagram. Okay. Absolutely. You guys are all over it. <laughs> Very fledgling YouTube channel, but we're working on it. Great. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on board and for the listener. We really appreciate you making us a part of your day today. Thanks for tuning Absolutely. in and at the start of 2020, I want to wish everyone out there the next best year of your life. Expand your growth mindset and go out and try something new. You'll probably succeed, but if you fail, again, you only lose if you don't learn something. That's it for now, and until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Have a great day.